Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. Whether you're watching the video version of this show at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you find good podcasts, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Make sure that you subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. And also, I want to give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm proud to be an official funk ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org and help keep the funk alive. For today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studio renowned music executive, tour manager, and writer Alan Leeds whose distinguished 50-year career includes working with James Brown in the early 1970s and 10 years with Prince from the early 1980s to 1990s. Among the other artists that Leeds, whose saxophonist brother Eric Leeds was a leading Prince uh, collaborator, um, Alan has also been involved with Cool and the Gang, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes featuring Teddy Pendergrass, Kiss, Cameo, Mavis Staples, and D'Angelo. He served as president of Princess Paisley Park Records label, and in 1992 won a Best Album Notes Grammy Award for James Brown's Star Time box set, one of many projects to which he has provided his eloquent liner notes. Leeds has a few books to his credit, including the long-anticipated tale of his time with JB, titled There Was a Time, James Brown, The Chitlin Circuit, and Me, that's due to come out on February 25th. Alan, so great to have you on the show. How are you? Scott, Scott. thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Always good to be with an ambassador, let alone one of funk. So you might be the first official ambassador of funk that I've met. There you go. Um, I do what I can. A lot of, lot of worthy candidates out here, but uh, I don't know if they've all been anointed yet. So. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. So... Where are you coming to us from today, Alan? From Edina, Minnesota, which is part of Minneapolis. I moved here in 1983. I thought temporarily for a job with Prince. The job lasted 10 years, and my wife and I have been here 30-some years. Go figure. <laughs> so, Wow. So you adjusted to that climate. Okay, I guess. Um, I've adjusted to everything but the climate. We spent six weeks in Florida last winter. I don't know what we're going to do this winter, but the climate is is about the only thing that's hard to adjust to here. Minneapolis is, is all my friends. I'm from New York, and uh, so many of my friends, particularly those in the industry, tease me about having stayed here because everybody, including myself and my wife, thought we'd be moving back east when my relationship with Prince ended. But it just never happened. It was the kind of thing, well, yeah, eventually we'll move back to New York or New Jersey or Long Island or something and just never push the button. And, um, you know, we're too old to move now. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're proud to be in Minneapolis. I miss New York all the time, but it's, you know, it's a two and a half hour flight. So who cares? I get there. This is a good place to live. And the yeah. times and summers, I mean, because of the climate, people who aren't familiar with this part of the country just assume it's always cold. And the fact is we have more than our share of 90 degree days in the summertime 
spring is just unbelievably splendid and um you just got to suck it up for the other six months <laughs> but it's a good place to live well i think you know a lot of the musicians that i've spoken to from there i think that you know when that weather hits it's a good excuse to to stay inside and either create some great music or write up some great you know liner notes or, or books yeah. about music yeah exactly yeah and and, and I don't want this to sound like I work for the Chamber of Commerce here, but um, Minneapolis is a very, very arts-friendly, arts-supportive community. And there, there's nothing arts-wise that we don't get. Every tour comes through here that's worth a damn. Uh, young bands come here because it's a market that's known for breaking new bands of all kinds. And... Um, it's it's just very very supportive of anything artistic. We've got great museums, world class art museums, um, great theater. So there's, there's you know there's just always something to do. And of course we got all the major sports. So I mean Minneapolis is no joke. This is a real real American city. Yeah. Well, yeah. we got the the world. I think it's the world's biggest mall. So yeah, we have to end. There's that. <laughs> That's the least of important things on my personal list, but to many it is important, and I understand that. So it's it's a, it's a good place. It's 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 almost good that it's so remote, and has such a rep for the climate because it keeps all the posers out. <laughs> it's just you know nobody wants to say, well, I don't think I'll relocate. Where should I go? Minneapolis. Nobody says that. So, yeah. so yeah. it's it's like it's like our best kept secret. It always struck me years ago when Prince said that it keeps the bad people out. Exactly. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's not far wrong. <clears throat> well, you know, it's like I said, it's a thrill to finally connect with you. I feel that we're kindred spirits in our, our love and lifelong passion for the music. And, no um, you know, you're kind of a hero to me and an icon in that you've actually really lived it with the artists themselves. So uh, that's just amazing and uh, great to have you on the show. So, you mentioned you're from New York. What else can you tell us, Alan, about, you know, young Alan Leeds growing up and getting so uh, impassioned about music? You know, what what was it about your upbringing and who were some of your early favorites? It's, it's almost hard to explain. I don't know. It must be in the DNA somewhere. But um, I had an uncle who was a saxophonist. He played in the orchestra that backed Perry Como on TV every week. So and, Wait for the, the the one shot of the hour-long Perry Como show where they'd show the orchestra for about that long. There's Uncle Phil. And, you know, we would do that every Saturday night. And I had another uncle who was program director of a radio station in New York, which meant I got a lot of free records because all the duplicates they'd get, he'd box up a bunch of records, you know, 45s. In, in, in the, this is in the 1950s, and ship them off to me. So I was I was almost attacked with music, but I, I just I just was one of those kids who loved music. I, I would stand by the record player and just watch the record go around and follow the needles through the grooves, and was just mystified by the whole thing. They could could make these sounds that would somehow get in you and make you feel certain ways you didn't even understand as a kid. Um, early favorites. Before rock and roll, Nat King Cole. My mother loved Nat King Cole. And as a result, we had a lot of Nat King Cole records in the house. 
my dad on the other on the other hand was into classical music primarily but some jazz so i got a dose of duke ellington and count basie and benny goodman which kind of spoke to me particularly basie um but then i heard alan freed show on the radio every summer See, I was born in New York, but my family moved around a little bit because of my dad's career. He was in retailing, worked for department stores. And every five or six years, he would get an offer for a new job that was better than the last job, and we'd end up moving. So I did grade school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, junior high school in Richmond, Virginia, high school in Richmond, Virginia, and then ended up going to Pittsburgh where I went to college. And as soon as I got out of school, um, well, actually, I quit school to go to work for James Brown. And when that ended, I moved back to New York. New York was always a passion. Family was there. And even as a little kid, every summer, as soon as school was out, I would hightail it to New York and spend most of the summer at my grandmother's house in Queens. So kind of was a pseudo New Yorker all along in my taste. So I heard Alan Freed. He played... Long Tall Sally by Little Richard. I'd never heard anything like it. Now, mind you, I'm 10 years old, so I had no idea who Sally was or why she was long and tall or what that really meant. I didn't get any of the sexual innuendos in the music at all. That just, you know, was, I was still a couple of years away from getting that part. But um, it just, just sounded so good and it felt so good. And I remember telling my mother, I got to go to the record store. I got to go to the record store. Mom, Mom, please give me 75 cents. I got to buy this 45 by Little Richard. And she said, by who? Now, mind you, I have some Nat King Cole records, you know, and a few others that were pretty much just straight ahead pop. I think I might have had some Bill Haley records, but they were, you know, they were cool, but they were a little bit watered down from the real deal. And, um, Anyway, I got this long, tall Sally and brought it home, and my mother was dying to hear what it was I was so anxious to get. So I played it for her, and she just kind of looked at me like I was a space cadet. It's like, you know, she, did, she didn't put it down. God bless my mother. She did not put it down. I'm not sure she understood long, tall Sally either. I mean, little Richard, uh, you almost had to be from Georgia to understand the lyrics. <laughs> he sang them so fast. So I think that part of it went right by her. But uh, certainly was nothing like anything she'd ever heard before. And um, I remember the record playing. It was like two and a half minutes long or something. And I looked at her and said, Ma, isn't it pretty? And I just remember using the word pretty because as I got a little older, I realized what a ludicrous word that was to use for that record. Cause yeah, it's, although it's, Little Richard liked to refer to himself as being pretty. No question, but I, I didn't know all that. I didn't even know what the guy looked like yet. I just heard this record and it, you know, it hit me. So I had to get it. So he was he was the, the, the first. And in rapid succession came Chuck Berry and Fats Domino. And, you know, for whatever reason, I was drawn to the black side of rock and roll, Bo Diddley. Um, and then one night I was channel surfing, actually looking for a baseball game to listen to on the radio. This is, again, the 50s, so it's AM radio. You know, you're a kid with your ear to the radio. And I happened upon a radio station that happened to be a black four-manned radio station. 
which was also a new discovery because I've been listening to top 40 radio and maybe one out of five records would be R&B in the rest were all Elvis or Ricky Nelson or Pat Boone or some shit like that. And um, I found this black radio station and all of a sudden I found this is a radio station. Every record they play is cool. And I started hearing things like Huey Smith and the Clowns and, and uh, mentioned Bo Diddley and artists that didn't necessarily cross over to Top 40 radio. And from then on, I was hooked. It was just like, you know, there, there were no Elvis records in my house. I, I didn't, you know, disrespect him. To, and as time went on, I grew tremendous respect for Elvis and what he accomplished. But there's still only one Elvis record in my house, and it's a collection of his son in 45s. It's, it's like, I didn't care about that shit. And which, you know, as I got a little older and the rest of the kids in school were all into rock and roll, I was still kind of an outsider because I was into records that most of them weren't aware of. And, um, you know, and they were still digging Roy Orbison, who, who again, is somebody who I've grown to really respect and like. But at the time, it was like, nah, 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 you got to hear the drifters. You got to hear the coasters. And and it was, I was just, I don't know why. Shit just worked for me. What's the age difference between you and Eric? Five years. And so did you gravitate towards playing anything as well? or? Actually, I did. And I tell this story in the book, but I took drums in 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 this is in grade schools probably like second or third grade so it was you know well before an age where you would be thinking about doing anything professionally but i took i signed up for drum class and this is you know back in the day when they had music classes in schools and schools were really good schools in america and um that class lasted for me i think about two weeks and what happened was we were, first of all, I was anxious to make noise. I wanted to actually hit drums. This sounded like a cool thing to do. Somebody who liked R&B music and rock and roll and was like, oh, man, I can't wait to play along with the records I have at home. Well, then I find out they give you a practice pad, which is to anybody who doesn't know, it's, it's a rubber pad that makes hardly any sound just kind of a very dull thud that you got to lean over it even here. Um, and supposedly you're supposed to learn technique on the pad before you graduate to playing drums. And, you know, I mean, a grade school, I had no business with a drum kid, so they were right. But it wasn't any fun playing a pad. You couldn't hear it. It wasn't, you know, so I wanted to get energy out and couldn't and i guess express whatever musicality there was in me that had drawn me to this music and i couldn't do that either so i was kind of turned off by the pad but nonetheless i go to class and we're practicing some kind of a roller or paradiddle or some something and i'm tapping my foot keeping time with my with my foot and the teacher was a kind of stern guy he didn't say a word he just put his hand on my knee and pressed it down hard. Don't tap your foot. He never explained why. Now, the other side of me was also rebellious. So the fact that he did that really, really angered me. And again, as a kid, I had no business getting angry at a teacher. He wasn't abusing me, 
But nonetheless, that was the end of my drumming. I kept the sticks, never came back to, to that class. If he had simply explained, respected my intelligence enough to explain that you had to break the habit of tapping your foot to keep time because you're going to need independence of your feet and your hands in order to play a drum kit. You got one foot on the hi-hat, you've got one foot on the bass drum, and your hands are doing, they're all doing different things. If he had explained that to me, which is a, really a very basic concept, but I'm a little kid, I don't know anything about playing a drum kit, I just want to make noise. And of course he didn't, he just smacked my knee. So, so that was the end of my drumming. Hmm. Um, my brother, on the other hand, was less rebellious, much more self-disciplined, one could say mature. And um, as a result, he took up music and actually turned into a fabulous musician, um, a better musician than he even thinks. But um, I didn't it's just the, ju just the two of you. Uh, any yeah, other just, just the two of us. That was enough. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but he he had the patience and the self discipline that I didn't have, so I had to I had to figure out another way to make a living off this stuff. It was like it wasn't going to happen from playing. I probably could have been a decent musician. I'm not going to sit here and say I'd have been good, let alone great. Who knows? But um, I would have been okay. Can you can I had you a sense of rhythm? I could carry a tune. I had a sense of rhythm. I had good good time because those sticks, by the way, that I kept from school, they lasted for about 10 years because what would happen is my drum kit, whenever my parents would go out for the evening, for dinner, to a movie or whatever the hell, <clears throat> I would collect all the garbage cans in the house and the waste paper baskets and turn them over and create a kit and then put on something like Count Basie at Birdland or a Ray Charles album or something and just play along with the whole record. So I, I, you know, I, I had a sense of rhythm. probably could have been a decent drummer, but that took patience and self-discipline, and, and this has never been my virtues. <laughs> so, what were you doing, uh, you know, and what led up to the James Brown connection for you? Um, and and at that point in your life, what were you thinking you might end up doing in life? I had no idea. I had no, this, this just goes back to the rebellious lack of self-discipline person that I was, person that I am. Um, I had no career plan. And now fast forward to high school where kids are starting to think about where they want to go to college and what they want to major in and beginning to define ideas about what their career goals are. I had none. I just knew I wanted to be around music. Um, I had been to a couple of concerts, which had really opened my eyes to the fact that it was way more exciting even than playing records because this music came to life and it affected not just me, but all of a sudden there's a shared experience of people dancing in their seats or in the aisles or yelling and screaming out of joy from the music that, that meant something to them. And I wanted to be a part of that somehow. I just happened to meet a couple of guys who were disc jockeys on a radio station in Richmond, Virginia. Fast forward, I'm now in high school in Richmond, Virginia. And I used to hang around the radio station with them on the weekends. Every Saturday, I'd go down to the radio station and they would be on the air doing their thing. And I'd be sitting in the background and while the records were playing, we would talk and this and that. 
And I just made a pest of myself. And part of it, quite honestly, until we became really good friends, was I knew radio. I knew from my uncle in New York that radio stations had a lot of extra records. So I was like, okay, not only am I going to get some free records, but I'm also going to be able to go through their record library once they know me and trust me. And, you know, it was was an early version of crate digging because it was like there were these shelves of 45s that the radio station never played. They just stashed them. Some were duplicates of hit records. Some were obscure records that they were never going to play. And for a kid who was fascinated with this stuff, it was like a gold mine. So... So I was, you know, that led to, there was an opening at the radio station and these two guys said, why don't you talk to the boss and you could become a part-time disc jockey since you love the music so much and you play records at home, you might as well get paid for it. So that sounded good. So I did that. Luckily, I got the gig. And so now I'm on the radio playing the music that I love. It was a black formatted radio station. Go figure. And um, so I was kind of like the white token disc jockey at a black station, Um, which in retrospect wasn't cool because in those days, the only opportunities for young uh, black broadcasters was pretty much limited to black media. So basically, I was taking up a seat that was coveted by so many people who wanted to get into broadcasting and didn't have opportunities elsewhere. So I'm actually not so proud of that. But at the time, I didn't think like that. I'm a teenager who wants to play these records and somebody's gonna pay me to do what I do at home, play records, it sounded great. Most importantly, the radio station promoted almost all of the soul shows that came through Richmond. That's where they were all advertised. The program director of the station was also one of the top local promoters. And so that was really my angle is I want to be around that. And this is a step to get there. Now it's a backstage pass to every show that comes through town. Now I go to the program director and say, hey, James Brown is coming. He's my favorite. Let me go interview him at his hotel to hike the concert tonight. We'll come back to the station and play the tape of the interview. And it's promotion. And, um, you know, it was a normal thing, but for me, it was an opportunity to start meeting people in the business. And that's really how it started is I went to a hotel and interviewed James Brown and what I thought was going to be a 10, 15 minute interview turned into a two, two and a half hour visit. We never got to the interview on the radio station because I stayed there until it was time to go to the gig and I rode with him to the gig. Go figure. We stayed in touch. I would chase his show around. What year was that, Alan? This was 65, summer of 65. And I would chase his show around wherever he played within a couple hundred miles of Richmond. I mean, by then I had a car and I'm driving. So if he was in D.C., I'd go. If he was in Baltimore, I'd go. If he was in West Virginia, I'd go. If he was in Norfolk, Virginia, I'd go. So I would see him. I'm sorry sorry to interrupt you, but I... No, please do. What, what was the composition of the crowds like at that point? Was it mixed or mostly African-American? I would say, with the exception of a couple of college gigs, the audiences for him in 65, 66, really up until the s- middle of 66, were almost primarily black. Not almost primarily, almost totally. Um, I would say there'd be... If there were 3,000 people in a, in a theater, maybe there's 100 white faces. 
and half of them worked there. <laughs> you know, it's like that. Um, he hadn't really crossed over yet. He had had a couple of records that were successful on pop radio, but not enough to get the kids willing to go because in those days there was also a stigma that, oh, it's a black show, it's dangerous to go to, you get beat up, you know, it's, it's, none of which ever happened to me. But at any rate, um, you know, I hung around for a long time for whatever reason James Brown took to me and I was always able to get backstage and hang out. I got to know his manager, I got to know his band, some of the band members, just became like a, a mascot at whatever show I'd show up and show up at. And eventually, 1969, now I'm in Pittsburgh in my second year of college. And I got a phone call from one of his in-house agents saying that we need a local promoter for a show coming up at the arena in Pittsburgh. Would you be willing to take that on? And I'm like, you think? Um, so that what that meant was they'd send me 100 posters that I'd throw in the trunk of the car and drive around town and put some of them, some of them up with a staple gun and go to the barber shops in the black neighborhoods and you know, give them a buck to put it in the window and, you know, that kind of stuff. I would um, monitor the radio advertisements, monitor the newspaper advertisements. Every aspect of the promotion of the event was basically in my hands and, you know, reporting by phone to Brown's people. Did you get any uh, guidance on that or you just figured it out on the fly? Well, I, I had done some promotion when I was back in Richmond at the radio station myself and a couple of the other DJs formed a promotion company and we used to do club shows we promoted shows with people like Jerry Butler the drifters the impressions um Walter Jackson I'm trying to think who else the drifters the drifters um so I you know I knew the you know it's it, you have to understand too that in the 60s black music was pretty much a mom and pop business you didn't have corporate tour promoters. You didn't have corporate record companies involved because the record companies didn't do anything in terms of tour support for these artists. All they did was put the records out. So the artists were totally on their own. So if if you had any kind of common sense about how to promote an event, it, it, it I don't want to say it was easy, but it was simple if you can understand the difference between easy and simple. It was some hard work because it was a lot of legwork. And you'd have to bribe people into putting the posters up and bribe newspapers into writing editorial pieces about the upcoming show as opposed to just running the ads and, and bribe radio stations to put the, put the advertisements in the right time slots and uh, make sure the local disc jockeys on the air were giving enough exposure to Brown's records at the time. So, I mean, it, a lot of it was, you know, just really common sense. But as my wife says, common sense isn't so common. So, um, so it worked. At any rate, the show sold out. Brown was impressed and said, boy, son, you've really grown up. You know what you're doing. You know, I taught you well. Of course, he took all the credit, <laughs> and, um, which I was only happy to let him have. And the long and short of it is about a month later, I had quit school and I was on his payroll. So that's how that happened. What were your impressions of, of James Brown as a, as a, obviously as a performer, I'm sure he blew you away, but what was he like? I mean, how would you describe his temperament, uh, how he interacted 
he was kind of like Donald Trump without the evil streak. Very, very, very temperamental. Very opinionated. He was always right. You were always wrong. Um, facts didn't always matter. But he was also kind of like a father figure in the sense that, I mean, he famously would fire people. I mean, it was an initiation. I got fired a month after I got there. I quit school and everything. And my friends at school gave me a big going away party. <laughs> it was, you know, and a month later, I was like just sitting in Cincinnati with no money in my pocket, a car with an empty gas tank and no job. So, I mean, that's what working for James, but it was an initiation. A month after that, I was back with a raise. You know, it was kind of like he's testing you. Um, he was a handful, but I had known him for four or five years and had seen him go off on people. So it wasn't like really, there were really no surprises. I, I kind of, you know, knew what I was in for to a degree. Um, but the main thing that, that, that overrides all of this is the father figure in him, and this is where he's different from Trump. If Trump's through with you, he loses your number and throws you under the bus. James might throw you under the bus, but then he'd pull you out before the bus ran over you. Mm. You know? And and it was like, as long as you were willing to kiss the ring, you could always go back home. You could always get your job back, which accounts for how so many people who worked for him, both in his bands, as well as behind the scenes, um, worked for him off and on for decades because you could always go home. You, you know, you have to eat a little crow, but the door was open. It, 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 it's, you know, every tour I've been on, somebody invariably says, wow, this group is like a family. Well, most of them are not. What James Brown was, and, and to wit, those of us that are still on this earth from those days, most of us are still in touch with each other. I mean, I, I talked to Martha High. I talked to uh, uh, Bootsy. I talked to other people that were in the band. I talked to Danny Ray just a couple of months ago. I mean, you know, it's not like we're on the phone every day, but we're all still in touch. And this is not a tour from five years ago. We're talking 50 years ago. Yeah. People that were young and now we're old and we're still talking to each other. I talk to Pee Wee Ellis all the time, Fred Wesley all the time. Every time Maceo comes through town, I go see him and we hang out, talk about old times. So it, 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 it really was a family in the sense that maybe we were all unified by the fact that we were all scared of our boss. I don't know, but, but it's, whatever it was, it worked. Well, was there a lot of commiserating about that at the time? Oh. Every time he turned his back or walked out of the room, we'd look at each other and roll our eyes and say, oh, God, what do we got to do now? Because he was um, he was impulsive. So you could have a meeting on Monday night and make a whole bunch of decisions about how you're going to handle the tour for the next month. And then Tuesday afternoon, he would just completely reverse. It was as if you never had a meeting and you, everything you agreed on the night before that you started doing Tuesday morning went out the window. And now we got a whole new plan. I mean, it was like that all the time. But, well, um, 
But so the year that you joined him, though, was that '69 or '70 or? The end of '69. Okay, so you were there just before he changed bands. Yes. Yep. Three months before. And that record just came out. Um, that great uh, lost record of that yep. last live recording just of late '69 with that band. And that was right around the same time when you came in, I guess. Correct. The, the, the Augusta show, for those who don't know, it's it's uh, it's available today. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. Live at Home with His Bad Self, which was a homecoming show James Brown did in concert in Augusta, Georgia. It was recorded October 1st of 1969. And that was, well, actually six months before the band changed. So it was the, the old. And the pre-Bootsy band, uh, the classic James Brown orchestra that Pee Wee Ellis had helped organize, and um, Fred Wesley, Maceo Parker, John Starks, Clyde Funky Drummer, Stubblefield, Jimmy Nolan, Sweet Charles, etc., etc., Cush Griffiths, um, amazing band, and um, that was October 1st, and I went to work for him right after Thanksgiving. So th th that show was recorded like a month and a half before I came aboard. But it's, so, it's very representative of what he was doing when I came on. The show was basically the same as the album. So, What can you tell us, uh, uh, what was it like during that transition? I mean, I've heard, you know, Bootsy's tell the story of, you know, when they were brought in and the other guys left and all that. But from your vantage point, how did you see what went down? Well, it, it, first of all, it, it actually occurred while I was on hiatus. As I said, everybody who gets hired gets fired, and, and I was gone. And I came back about two weeks after the band was in place. So they were, they were still getting their, their feet wet. But I had been in touch with a couple of the guys that I had worked with um, in Brown's office. So I was, you know, up to date with all the gossip and everything that had happened. And I personally was traumatized because I thought the James Brown Orchestra, the, the Pee Wee Ellis Maceo Band was just like the quintessential. R and quite honestly, I still do. That's my favorite band of all time. <laughs> of, of any kind, it, it still is from... From 67 to 69, that James Brown band was just without peer. I mean, it, it, it's the, the level, not, not just the inventiveness. I mean, yeah, they invented funk with Cold Sweat and had, you know, key musicians like Maceo and who kind of rewrote the book on tenor sax for R&B music and took it to the next level. And um, Jimmy Nolan did the same thing with the guitar. Uh, Jabbo and Clyde did the same thing with drums. But as a unit, the quality of musicianship, I mean, all of these guys were capable of playing uh, the most sophisticated jazz. In fact, some of them, Wayman Reed and Pee Wee is what they were, Fred Wesley, that was what they really wanted to do. They even made fun of some of James Brown's music because for them it was so simple, quote unquote. But by the same token, the band was just the quality of musicianship was just just on another level. and And you would really appreciate it when you'd go here, say Otis Redding or Chuck Jackson, other R&B artists, Joe Tex, Sam and Dave, who all had their own bands that were very similar to the Brown Band in the sense they had a bunch of horns, sometimes even two drummers, so on. But none of them 
could even hold the jockstrap of the James Brown guys. I mean, they were they were just sour notes. There was sloppy intonation, and just they weren't as well rehearsed. Whatever the case, it just there was nothing like that James Brown band. Do you do, but, you, do you think do you think that's because James has such a good eye and or ear for talent to bring them together, sort of like the way George Clinton did later with with P Funk, or was it just uh, fate or luck or you know how did Probably equal. Everything aligned so that he had a band like that. I would say equal parts both. Um, he certainly had an ear for good musicians. There's no question. Because even his earlier bands, for what they did, maybe was less inventive, but was very well done. Most importantly, he was a perfectionist, and he would rehearse them to death. And, you know, legendarily fine you for a bad note or a misstep. So the discipline in the group was also what was so different from the other soul bands of that era that just didn't have the same ambition towards perfection that he had. And it's not to say some of them weren't good, um, but it was it was just, just another thing. Now, he had an ear for ear for excellent musicians. Most importantly, when he got a couple of good musicians in the band, every time there was a vacancy, they would rush to get one of their buddies in place. So you had guys like first Nat Jones and later when Pee Wee Ellis took over and brought it up a notch. Uh, well, for example, Wayman Reed, who's probably the best, best trumpeter that Brown ever had. I mean, he was way overqualified for the gig. I mean, Wayman Reed ended up playing in Count Basie's band. Um, he he ran Sarah Vaughn's band for the last 10 years of her life. I mean, he, he was a, a fine player who, if if he had been in jazz from the beginning, probably be a household name. I mean, Wayman was a superb trumpet player. But he got in the band for the same reason a lot of guys did. It was a steady paycheck. And... Um, when they needed a saxophonist, he called Pee Wee Ellis. He knew him. He said, man, there's a gig. One of them called Fred Wesley. One of them called Cush Griffith. So you, so you had these guys who wanted to surround themselves with equally good musicians. They didn't want the, the, the guys who couldn't keep up. And gradually, they, they, they really weeded all the weak guys out of the band. When I say weak, maybe they were good enough to play the gig, but it took them too long to learn the music, and the good guys, the good musicians would get impatient and get tired of waiting. So it was like they, they wanted a band that was on their level. They wanted everybody on their level. So, so there was that working for it. And, of course, Brown appreciated it because the results were there. So it made his life easier, and he could depend on them in a way he couldn't with some of the earlier bands to really follow him because there was a lot of improvisation, a lot of cues, a lot of craziness going on in the shows that demanded an attention and attention to detail and being able to think on your feet and make a, instant adjustments. So the, the level of musicianship benefited him, too. So um, I, I, I think it was all those factors that, it, it, you know, you can boil it down and say fate, but, um, you know, I don't think it was an accident. No, that makes sense. It's like it's sort of like a chain reaction of sorts with, yeah. you know, one link to another.
Thank you.